Well, hey, it's great to see you today. If you've got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, as Pastor Rod said, and pray for him as he goes back to minister probably to my kids. Um, I, I, uh, I feel for you. So John chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. And I want to start uh, with this. I want you to think about some of the most important questions that a human being can ask, some of the most important questions. And I, I did some thinking about this this week. Some of these answers are serious. Some of them are not so serious. But I thought about what were the most important questions that I've asked in, in my life. Right at the top of the list, you can tell my wife that I said this, was the question, will you marry me, Brianna? Question mark. And that was a pretty monumental question. What do I want to do when I grow up? That's a big question. Um, what are my values? What do I value? What do I care about? And then maybe alongside of that, am I actually living by the values that I, that I say that I have? What are you afraid of is a big question. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for in your life? How can I take better care of myself, whether physically or, or emotionally? Um, I, this one's a big one. Um, do these oysters taste funny? Question mark. And then, and then perhaps one of the, the more weighty questions, um, donde esta el baño? Which is, can be important as well. And all those are big questions. All those are important in their own ways. But I want to talk about today what I think is the most important question that has ever been asked in, in the history of of the world, and it's, it's this question right here, who do you say that I am? And it's asked by Jesus Christ, it's asked by Christ in, in Matthew chapter 16, it's asked by Christ in, in Mark chapter 8, but it's the question of who is Jesus really? Is he, is he just a good teacher? Um, is he a, a mythical character, a kind of like King Arthur or something like that? Who is Jesus? And not just who is he, sort of in the abstract, but, but a lot more specifically, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Christ to you? What is your answer to, to that question? And one of my favorite authors, I, I know I've mentioned this before, and I know I, I have a friend, a fellow fa fan of uh, Flannery O'Connor sitting right in front of me and one of my colleagues, Lisa Riggs. But Flannery O'Connor has probably her most famous short story, and it's called A Good Man is Hard to Find. And like almost all of Flannery O'Connor's stories, it's a dark story. There, there is darkness, there's, there's violence, there's also humor. And somebody said once that in, in O'Connor's story, and she was a, a committed Christian, grace always gets in sideways. Grace comes in through the cracks. It comes in through ways that you least expect. And, and a good man is hard to find, spoiler alert, if you've, never, if you've never read it. It's a story of this family and this sort of self-righteous Christian grandmother is riding along with her kids and they're talking about this thing that they've been hearing in the news, that there is a, a killer on the loose and they call him the misfit. And they think, oh man, we don't want to run into the misfit. What is this world coming to? You know, why does this, this sort of thing happen? And sure enough, they run into the misfit. And there is this, is, I won't go into all the details, but there is this very sort of angst-ridden 
conversation between this very proper Christian self-righteous grandmother and this serial killer. And weirdly enough, Jesus comes up. And the grandmother is trying to sort of bargain for her life and the life of her son, the life of her family. And so she brings up Jesus. And the misfit says this, Jesus. Jesus was the only one who ever raised the dead. And he shouldn't have done it. He throwed everything off balance. If he did what he said, if he is who he claimed to be, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness. And, and what O'Connor does in this story through this diabolically evil character is to sort of present the great choice that Jesus presents when he asks that question. Who is he? And did he really do the things he claimed to do? Because if he did, then as the misfit says, it's nothing for you to do but to throw away everything and follow him. But if he didn't, probably shouldn't pay any attention to him at all. If he didn't, there's probably no reason for any of us to be in this room today. There's lots of other ways that we could spend our time. And so the question I want to ask today is, is very simple. Is Jesus really the divine son of God? Is he really fully human and fully divine as, as the scriptures say. And, and to be honest, there are a lot of people, scholars even, who have answered that question with, an, with, with a strong no. No. And, and they would claim that not even Christ's earliest followers really thought that he was fully divine. That, that sort of was an idea that came along later as the church got older and older and sort of maybe they imported it from paganism or they imported it from somewhere else. And, and a big word that we're going to look at today, this is our scholarly word of the day, is the word adoptionism. Adoptionism. And I think adoption is a fantastic thing. I'm glad that some of you in this room have probably adopted children or maybe you're adopted yourself. Adoptionism, adoption is a fantastic thing. But adoptionism is the idea that Jesus actually was just a man. He was a great man, maybe. And he was such a great man that he was essentially adopted by God. He was promoted, so to speak. He was elevated from a human status to a divine status. Either at his baptism, when he came up out of the water and the voice proclaims, you know, this is my son, right? Maybe he was adopted at his baptism. Or after his resurrection. And if you follow sort of the news or the Discovery Channel or just uh, sort of people who talk about Jesus publicly. A very famous Bible scholar who's currently alive is a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman. And Ehrman just came out with a book not long ago. And the title is, How Jesus Became God. And, and, and the, cover is, the, the cover art, I got to hand it to whoever did it, depicts his thesis perfectly because there are people ascending a ladder to divinity. And he's not talking about how God became 
human. He's talking about how a human became God. He says Jesus is, quote, divine in the sense that he is one who has been adopted to be the Son of God. And he says, at his baptism. So he was a, he was a human who was kind of adopted to be the Son of God at his baptism. That's what, that's what Bart Ehrman says. The, the father of modern theology, a guy by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher. That's a great name. Schleiermacher. His claim is that, look, all humans have within them this, this sort of seed of divinity. And so Jesus is divine, says Schleiermacher, and so can you. <laughs> Jesus is divine, and you can be divine too by sort of following his teaching. Julius Wellhausen, famous Bible scholar from the 19th century, says Jesus entered into the water as a mere man, and he came out as the Son of God. That's quite the bath. I've been trying that with my kids. It hasn't worked yet, right? He, he went into the water as a human. He came out as the perfect son of God. John Knox, the famous reformer, 16th century reformed theologian, claimed that Jesus was nearly adopted to be the son of God as well. And so you say, Josh, why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about this, right? Well, one of the reasons is we've been in the gospel of John. And if there is one place in the entire Bible that we need to go to to answer the question that we're looking at today, is Jesus really fully human and fully divine, then the Gospel of John is the best place to look. Who is Jesus really? And so Pastor Rod asked me in the midst of this series to just look at really a question, the question that we're looking at, the divinity of Christ, and we'll look at it through the lens of of John, but we'll also look at it in some other ways because I think it's, it's the most important question that a person can ask. And so John chapter 1, if you've got your Bible, the words will be up on the screen as well. We've read this already in our series, but we're going to come back to it today in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14, it goes on and says this. The word became flesh. And he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's word to us. John's gospel starts with this singular concept. It's not a concept that we see taken up by the other gospel writers in quite the same way, that Jesus is the Word, capital W, and the Greek word for word that he uses is the Greek word logos. And if you had to sort of understand what this concept means in the ancient world, in the Jewish scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, God speaks creation into existence through his logos, through his word. It becomes the agent of creation. And because of that, it has to be preexistent. It has to predate creation. God creates through his word. 
And in the, in the pagan culture, in the, in the Greek culture, the Stoics especially, they used this exact same concept, the logos. And the logos for them was the thing that makes the universe tick. The things that makes, that makes grass grow and babies breathe their first breath. The thing that makes everything hold together and fit together and work together, the Stoics said, was the logos. And if you've watched the Star Wars movies, I, to my great shame, I have not, I'm sorry. The logos for the Stoics is a lot like the force. It's powerful and it pervades everything, but it's not personal. You can't like go up and shake hands with the force. Hey, force, nice to meet you. Um, I like your work. You, you, can't, you can't do that. It's this powerful force that created everything and holds everything together. But it's, it's powerful, but it's not personal. And the Stoics believe that that's what the word logos was. And so what John does is he takes up a word, the word, that has meaning in his pagan context, but also in the Jewish context, and he breathes new life into it. And he says, listen, not only is the Lagos powerful, not only is it the, the force that created all things and that moves all things and that holds all things together, it's not just powerful, it's personal. In fact, it has a face. It has a name. And he says, the word became flesh. Jesus is the pre-existent, fully divine logos that holds all things together. He is fully divine and he became human. He, he took on human flesh. That's who Jesus is. He's fully divine. You could go on beyond John 1 and, and you see this coming up over and over again in John's gospel, the divinity of Christ. Next slide. He's not just the Lagos in John 1. He speaks in ways that only God can speak. He says, before Abraham was, before Abraham existed 2,000 years before Christ, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And when he says, I am, for every Jewish person who heard him speak, it wasn't just a, like, you know, hey, here I am, I'm over here. I am was the name of the one true God, the name of Yahweh. I am fully divine is what he's saying. Next slide. He doesn't just say that. He makes himself, in John chapter 18, it says that he is making himself equal with God. And it's a charge that his enemies made against him, and it's a charge that Jesus would not refute because it was true. He was doing the things that only God could do. Only God could forgive sins. Only God could claim to be the creator. Only God could claim to be the redeemer. He makes himself equal to God. Next slide. And then toward the end of the gospel, we get maybe the clearest statement of Jesus's divinity where Thomas, the disciple who doubts, I don't know if any of you feel a sort of affinity or kinship to Thomas. Thomas looks at Jesus after the resurrection. And Jesus in his, his scarred physical body. And in spite of the scars, Thomas says, you're my Lord and you're my God. 
you're, you're fully human and you're fully divine. And so if you had to answer that question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus in the Gospel of John? The bottom line is, is very simple. That John sees Jesus as fully human and fully divine. That's who he is. And that's how John presents him. But, but, there's always an objection. And for years, beginning with the rise of sort of liberal Protestant scholarship in the 1700s, the objection to John was, yeah, but John doesn't count. <laughs> John doesn't count because he was written hundreds of years after Jesus lived and died. He, John, it would be like me being the first source to write about, like, you know, the founding fathers hundreds of years later. So John doesn't count because he was written years, years and years and years and years, hundreds of years even after Jesus um, lived. And so what could he possibly know about the divinity of Christ? And so what would be the answer to that? If you're a Christian who genuinely wants to know, like, well, can I trust John? Like, does he have any proximity to the story of Jesus? And I'm going to answer that question the way every scholar answers every question, and that's by showing a picture of a library. This is a library, and I'm, I'm very proud of this library because this is the library at the University of Manchester over in England where I, um, where I went to school. And it's called the John Rylands Library. And I, don't, I was a, you know, like a rural kid from Kansas who got kicked out of gifted class after I took an IQ test. So, um, so for me to walk into this library, it's a true story, to anybody who walks into this library can feel like a scholar. Right? It's just beautiful, or a wizard, one of the two. Um, and this is the John Rylands Library. And I, every time I would go to, to study in Manchester, I would go visit the John Rylands Library. And I wouldn't just kind of get this nice panoramic view, but I would go to a particular spot in the John Rylands Library. And I'll, I'll show that in the next slide. This is called the John Rylands Papyrus. And this is what it looks like when you break the rule that says no cell phone pictures of the John Rylands Papyrus. This is the oldest fragment of the New Testament in existence. And it's housed in this, in this John Rylands library. It's named after the, the founder of the library. And lo and behold, it, it, didn't, it wasn't discovered until the 20th century. We've kind of entered into this golden age of discovering ancient manuscripts. It's the oldest copy of the New Testament in existence. It dates from between 100 and 150 years A.D., so very close to when John, the son of Zebedee, or John the Elder, lived. And guess what? It's of John's Gospel. In fact, it's the passage in John's Gospel, this is sort of, so I, I figure God has a sense of humor, where Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate. Pilate's asking, what is truth, right? And Jesus says, all those who are on the side of truth, listen to me. It's another closer picture that wasn't taken with my cell phone on the next slide. And what does that mean? Who cares about an ancient manuscript, right? I certainly, you know, most of us can't read that. And, and who cares about it? What's the significance of that? The significance is that this was the nail in the coffin to the idea that John's gospel was written hundreds of years after Jesus. It was the nail in the coffin 
And what we learn from, the, from this discovery and from other ancient archaeology and scholarship is that John was saying the same sorts of things that Jesus' other early followers were saying, and that is that he was fully human and he was fully divine. That's the evidence from John on the question of the divinity of Jesus Christ. But what's, what's the evidence from elsewhere? First, the evidence from John. Second, the evidence from elsewhere. And if, if you wanted to go to the earliest gospel, almost everybody would say that Mark was the earliest. And so what does Mark have to say about Jesus being divine? After all, this is a pretty important question for Christians and people are questioning it. People like Bart Ehrman and Schleiermacher and others are questioning it. What does Mark say about Jesus really being the Son of God, really being divine? And there's lots of passages we could go to. The problem with this message for me was that I had too much material, not too little. But here's just one. And it has to do with Malachi, Mark, and the messenger. Right? Three M's, so you get extra preaching points for that. Malachi has a prophecy. Malachi chapter 3 says this. Behold, this is, this is God speaking. Behold, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way for me. He will prepare the way before me. That's a prophecy from the Old Testament, that God's going to send his messenger, and that after the messenger, me, God himself, would come. And it's the passage that opens up Mark's gospel. Mark begins his gospel with Jesus as the fulfillment of this prophecy. John the Baptist is the messenger, and Jesus is the me. But in the passage, in the prophecy from Malachi, it's not just like a human me. It's not just like, you know, Joe Blow. It's, it's a divine me. First the messenger, and then, and then God himself. Mark speaks about Jesus as fully divine. That's an evidence from the beginning of Mark's gospel, what about the end? If we're just sort of bookending things, what about the very words that lead to Jesus's death? And you could say, well, there's a lot of words that lead to Jesus's death, but some of the most famous ones are in Mark chapter 14. Jesus is standing before the, the Jewish high priest, Caiaphas, and he's on, he's on trial. He's being questioned, he's being mocked, and it says this in Mark chapter 14, it says, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Right. And this passage for a Jewish person, you have to understand, uh, the Bible, I heard this said recently, and I love this quote, the Bible is the first hyperlink document in the history of the world. <laughs> and what was meant by that was, the fascinating thing about Scripture is you take any passage in the New Testament, almost any passage, and there are, references or allusions or quotes, or you could think of them as like hyperlinks, 
to earlier passages. And so to read the New Testament is to, to come across a series of hyperlinks that take you back to a previous chapter in the story. And the hyperlink in this passage is probably the most important Old Testament passage about the identity of Jesus in the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's Daniel chapter 7. And we don't read it a lot because it's weird. There are beasts and, and, and there's like this, this apocalyptic scene. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees one like a son of man. So he sees somebody who looks like a human. One like a son of man. He, he, he defeats these, these beasts and he ascends on the clouds of heaven. And he's seated on the single throne, the one throne in heaven. He's seated next to the ancient of days or, or the mighty one. But there's only one throne. And it says that this one like a son of man who looks just a human is sitting on God's chair. He's sharing the one seat of power in heaven. And Caiaphas of all people, knows exactly what Jesus has said, and it's his nail in the coffin that this guy is a blasphemer. In fact, he says that. We don't need to hear any more. No more witnesses. He's just confessed to making himself equal with or one with God, and that is heresy. That's blasphemy. Let's crucify him. And so even Mark's gospel which is sort of universally recognized as the earliest and in some ways the most restrained in its divine language, both at its very beginning and at its end and in several places in between, views Jesus in the same way that John does, that he's fully human and he's fully divine. One more example from the, from the scriptures from the New Testament and it's the example of the person that I think in the ancient world, if you had to pick somebody in all of the ancient world from any culture, from any ethnic group, from any sort of subgroup within any ethnic group, who would be the least likely person to believe that Jesus was the divine son of God. I think if you wanted to pick somebody, you're like, that guy will never buy this. He's never going to buy into this, right? You would pick an incredibly conservative, even fundamentalist Jew, probably a Pharisee, who disbelieved in Christ and hated all of his followers. Right? That would be like the least likely person in the entire ancient world to ever believe that Jesus was divine. And we meet somebody like that, and his name is Saul of Tarsus. He's a fundamentalist Jew who hates Jesus, doesn't believe his claims, and wants his followers to be killed. And yet when he encounters Jesus in the midst of his violent opposition, he has this incredible transformation. And throughout his letters, which are the earliest writings that we possess from the New Testament, the earliest come from Paul. He prays to Jesus repeatedly. You only pray to one who is God. He prays to Jesus. He composes worship songs to Jesus. He identifies the name of Jesus with the name of Yahweh, and he takes Old Testament passages, again, the hyperlink thing, in which the name of Yahweh is used, and yet he inserts the name of Jesus 
into those passages. He says things like, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, and he's talking about Jesus, will be saved. He views Jesus, the the Son, as the creator of the universe. The one who brought all things into existence. He says the Son in Colossians 1 is the image of the invisible God and all things were created through him. He thinks that Christ the Son was pre-existent, which is evidenced by the fact that he says repeatedly that God sent Jesus. It wasn't that he just sort of came into existence as a baby, but he was sent from heaven to earth at his birth. And so the bottom line for Paul in many ways is the exact same thing we see in John. It's the exact same thing we see in Mark and throughout the New Testament that the least likely person in the least likely ethnic group or series of tribes on the planet was crystal clear that Jesus was fully human and divine. Who do you say that I am? And Paul answers in many ways exactly as Peter does, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But who cares? Right? Like that's a great college lecture, Josh. Thanks for not charging us tuition. (laughs) Who cares? The last point, why it matters. Why does it matter if Jesus is fully human and fully divine? Like, who cares and what difference does it make to to our lives? And so, in the time we have left, I want to talk about that because it's the most important question. And it matters, first of all, you could say it matters because of this. That a merely human Jesus cannot save. If Jesus is just a really good guy, a really good rabbi, then he cannot save. Maybe the person in all of church history who did more to argue for and at great cost to himself The divinity of Christ was an early church father by the name of Athanasius. And Athanasius says this, If being a creature, a mere creature, he, the Son, had become human, humanity would have remained just as it was, not joined to God. Because the teaching of the church for centuries, is our problem is not just that we need a better example. Our problem is that we need a mediator. We need someone who can connect humans to the divine. We need someone who in his very essence does that, joins together humanity with divinity. And if he's just a good guy, he can't save us. Michael Bird, and one of the best books I read this week in sort of preparing for this message, the book by Michael Bird, he's an Australian New Testament scholar, and it's called Jesus, the Eternal Son. Bird says this, he says, we can only say God is for us if God is with us. And we can only say God is with us if God was one of us. Only that kind of Jesus is capable of saving. And in many ways, the the radical nature of the solution connects with the radical nature of the problem. If you think our problem as human beings 
is that we're just, we're just not quite good enough, then it doesn't take a very radical solution to sort of get us over the hump. If the nature of the problem is just that we just haven't had a really, you know, great preacher come along, right? Or, or a really great teacher or something, then it doesn't take a really radical solution. But if the solution requires that God himself would put on human flesh and die in our place, then the problem has to be radical. Because the solution sure as heck is. A merely human Messiah cannot save us, cannot deliver us from death and from, from bondage to sin. That's the first, the first reason why it matters. A second reason. A second reason. A merely human Jesus would affirm the myth of a merit-based self-salvation. If Jesus is just what, you know, Bart Ehrman and, and Schleiermacher and the others say that he is, he's just a local boy made good. He's a rags to riches story. He's an example of how each one of us can use that little spark of divinity and get ourselves over the hurdle. Then what he teaches us is a sort of legalistic, self-help, moralistic way to God. That the way to salvation is a merit-based self-effort. And that's, it worked for Jesus. He was a person just like us, and he was able to, you know, grit his teeth and get over the hump, and so can you, right? Michael Bird says this. He says, adoptionism contends that Jesus became the Son of God by merit, and thus it promotes a kind of merit-based theology. I don't know how many of you, maybe you've grown up with a merit-based theology. It can be crushing. He says, if that's the way it was with Jesus, then that's the way it is with us. And it promotes a merit-based theology where our own status and our own salvation is by works. He says, viewed this way, adoptionism is the counterpart to the American myth that all people, by sheer effort, can achieve anything. By sheer effort. And the reality is, it ain't so. I will never dunk a basketball. <laughs> I've come to grips with that reality, right? There, is, there are some hurdles that cannot be cleared by just trying harder. And if Jesus achieved divinity because he just worked hard as a mere mortal and he was adopted because of that, that it encourages that same sort of legalistic, self-help, moralistic form of Christianity that ultimately destroys souls. Because if you succeed in that in your own eyes, congratulations, you become a Pharisee. And if you fail at that, then you have nothing but despair. Because you realize that you're not good enough and that you don't have what it takes to sort of save yourself. If Jesus is merely adopted based on his good works, then it teaches us that that's the way we get adopted as well. And it's a crushing, non-Christian way to view God and to view ourselves. That's the second reason. One last reason. And this is on the other side. We've talked about the divinity. Let's, let's return to the humanity. A not fully human Jesus 
cannot relate. And specifically, to our weakness and to our suffering. I'm rejoicing that he's fully divine. But in some ways, that's not helpful unless he's also fully human. Hebrews says this, the book of Hebrews, we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize or to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. And yet, he did not sin. Jesus understands what it's like to be human, to be weak, to be tempted. In many ways, as I talk to my students, Jesus understands the pressing weight of temptation far more than we do because there's one surefire way to get the temptation to stop, right? What is it? Just give in. (laughs) And since Jesus doesn't do that, he understands the weight of that temptation more than even I do because he was able to resist it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the martyr during World War II, killed under Hitler's regime in the last days of World War II, Bonhoeffer, who, who suffered intensely, he says this, only the suffering God can help us. Only a God who knows our pain, who knows our weakness, who, who is shared in our humanity, can understand our weakness. And if Jesus isn't fully human, he can't relate. I'll tell you how I was reminded of this maybe most powerfully yesterday. Yesterday, for the second time in about a month, we had to take my two-year-old Ewan to the hospital. And he was at, took him to urgent care. They said, well, we need to admit him to the hospital. He's not breathing well. There's something going on. And so he had to spend the night last night in the hospital with mom. And I was with the other kids at home. And, and I, I had, almost every parent in here knows the, the, the just the horrible nature of looking at your little kid and seeing them struggle in one way or another, whether it's in a hospital bed or whether it's in school. Or, or it's, it's terrible. And so we're sitting there in Jane Phillips Hospital, and because it's a, a Catholic, a Christian hospital, there's, there's a cross in each room. And there's Jesus hanging on the cross. And if you know anything about crucifixion and how crucifixion kills you, you know that it involves this terrible gasping, gasping for breath until eventually, in some cases, the victims essentially drown in their own fluids as they, as they gasp for air. And I'm watching my two-year-old, nowhere near that, right? He's, he's doing far better or I wouldn't be here today. But I'm watching him sort of gasp for breath and his little belly going in and out and his just fast, rapid breathing, and he's not really able to fill his lungs. And I look up from him to Jesus on the cross, and I think of how many, how many hundreds of parents have done that in this room? How many thousands of Christians have done that through the centuries, through ages of time? And Buddha doesn't offer that. Allah doesn't offer you that. The self-help New Age section at Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com does not offer that. They don't offer a God who knows what it's like to gasp for breath, who knows what it's like to have a prayer, a pleading prayer go unanswered. May this cup pass. And the answer is, no, it may not. Jesus is fully divine. 
but he is also fully human. And because of that, he can relate to our weakness, to our suffering, to our humanity, to our fear, to our anxiety. And at the end of the day, that is good news. It's not just some arcane, abstract, academic, theological debate for classrooms. It's the most applicable, practical, personable truth that you can imagine that he knows what it's like. And yet, he doesn't just relate to us. He's also powerful enough to bring life out of death and to save. And so what more beautiful more poignant picture today as we celebrate communion than a God who knows what it's like to suffer. And yet a God, because of his full divinity, he also knows how to save. And so as we pray today, we're going to pray together. The band's going to play and we're going to receive communion. But would you, would you hold that image in your mind today? Maybe the image of the cross, the image of Christ and what he did for you. And let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are not just a good teacher, that you are not just a good example or a, a great worker of miracles. Thank, that you, thank you that you are also fully divine, even in your full humanity, that you did in your very body what you do in your gospel, and that is unite human things to divine things. And you bridge that gap. And so, my Lord, I thank you that this doctrine, this truth, is not just the subject for academic debates, but it's the very burning center of the gospel. And we place our hope in it. We thank you, Lord, that perhaps the the most beautiful picture or parable of that truth is the one that we're about to enact together. That on the night that you were betrayed, you took bread and broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. In the same way also you took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So, Lord, we examine ourselves and we find that, that we are lacking. We don't just need a better example or a better teacher. We need a Savior. And so we repent. But alongside that repentance, we have great joy that even in spite of our failures, we are loved more than we could ever imagine. We are accepted as we join ourselves to you, your broken body, your shed blood. That is our hope for salvation. It's the hope for change in our lives, for victory over addictions or trials, over hurts and habits and hang-ups. That we've been made one with you. We've been filled with your spirit. So Lord, we thank you for that. As we take, receive this communion today, we celebrate your grace, the fact that you are truly God and yet truly one of us. It's in your risen, victorious, holy name we 